Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But, you know, I do think there's something special about climbing. And I think what's special about it is that it's, and that there are other sports that have this quality too, but it's, it's very unnatural. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. This latest feature is with world-class rock climber Hazel Finley. As well as being a climber, Hazel is a coach and a lifelong traveller. We talked about her coaching, the mental side of climbing, and what climbing can do for our sanity. We also talked about the keys to happiness and life on the road. For those of you who aren't regular climbers, there's a climbing jargon glossary in the show notes on the website. As you'll hear at the end of the podcast, we've actually recorded a further feature with Hazel on the subject of gender in the outdoors, which we'll be releasing soon. Before we get started, I just wanted to give another big shout out to Sidetrack Magazine. If you're enjoying these stories of adventure and exploration on the podcast, then you're sure to love Sidetracked. If you've not read it before, then you can grab a copy on their website at sidetrack.com. And if you are, then there's a new volume out in June. Right, over to Hazel. My name is Hazel Findlay, and I'm approaching 30 this year, which is fairly terrifying for myself. Um, And I was born in the UK, in Bristol, and I'm a professional climber. And I've been a professional climber for uh, getting on for six years now. And I've climbed for about 24, 25 years, which is kind of absurd to think of. Yeah, and um, yeah, that's me. Oh, I'm also a coach, I suppose. Really interested in the psychology of climbing um, and kind of the, the two sides of it, really, what climbing can teach us about psychology and what we can learn about psychology that will help us become better climbers. Do you still jump off things with a big bit of canvas above your head or not? Oh, paragliding, yeah. Oh, you know what? I haven't flown in ages. Um, and I'm, I'm considering giving up. I'm thinking about it. Basically it depends what I do with my life at the moment as to whether I give it up or not. But, um, like where I want to live basically. Um, but I, I am psyched on the paraglide, paragliding. I like it, but it's expensive and it's dangerous. Yeah, it is both of those things. Yeah. And I just love climbing so much. Climbing's just enough for me. With the other things that I do, um, I don't feel like I need something else. So where do you want to live? I might be moving to North Wales, actually. Yeah. Why North Wales? (laughs) Well, I sort of played around with living abroad, like in France. Um, But a few things. I think I travel so much 
that actually I want my base. Well, in fact, you know, I haven't had a base actually in the last 10 years. Like I've basically been living out of a bag for 10 years, going from trip to trip to trip with some stints in Chamonix in an apartment, but always moving out of the apartment when I wasn't in Chamonix anymore and just like basically moving in and out all the time. And I think I sort of realized that um, the place that I want to come back to in between the trips, it's much nicer if that place is familiar and I speak the language and my friends are there and I know how things work and I can go to the shop and have a normal conversation with the shop owner and all of that kind of mundane but familiarness um, is actually kind of what I, I want in between trips and also leads to more productivity in terms of uh, training and coaching work. Um, because if you live somewhere like really exciting and foreign, it almost just feels like another trip. And so there's no real respite in between all of the like excitement of climbing and flying and all that stuff. So yeah, maybe I'm just getting old is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we're, we're born in the same year, I think. And it's, I worry that I'm getting old too. But what's... I'm sort of, I'm sort of embracing it a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> I'm having a lovely time. Yeah. I made bread and soup last week. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> um, so what, I definitely have my own answers to this question, but what is wrong with everything feeling like one big holiday, one big trip? Yeah, the thing is, holidays aren't holidays if you're on them all the time. Um, and people who kind of have a really normal, structured job, what I guess they don't maybe understand is that, and I'm certainly not complaining here because I absolutely would choose my life of like random adventure and freedom over a life of structured office job or whatever. Um, but maybe what people don't understand is how tiring it is to move around all the time. Um, and I'm very good at it. Like I, I'm completely used to it. I moved around a lot as a kid, so I don't really have a home anywhere. Like, there's no one place where I'm like, oh yeah, that's where I come from. That's my home. I don't have anywhere like that. Um, but it's really tiring and you you kind of need some time and a place, I think, to gather yourself, you know, and have all your things. Be, like right now, I've got some things in one van in Spain, some things in another van in Spain, some things in a shed in Chamonix, some things in an apartment in Chamonix. Well, it's not even in an apartment. It's in a ski locker outside an apartment in Chamonix. Some things at my mum's house and some things at a friend's house in Sheffield and some things in my van in America. So I literally have like, oh, and some things in a friend's house in America as well. <laughs> so it's literally like, um, it's just, it's just like your life is a mess when you don't have a base and you don't have some kind of gap in between all the trips. But that's been fun while it was fun, right? Oh, it's been super fun. And I'm sure I would still continue to have fun going on all these trips and and it's not like I'm I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'm tired of trips. I'm going to move somewhere and just like hang out. Like, no, I'm obviously, if I move to North Wales, I'm probably only going to be there like three months of the year. But it's like this mental thing of having somewhere to come back to. Like recently I got a finger injury and I just like planned a surf holiday 
because I didn't even have anywhere to go to, you know? Like, I'll just, like, I'll just go somewhere else because I don't have anywhere to go, which is so weird. <laughs> Do you think that can play havoc with your mental health? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think I'm pretty resilient to, to that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think my, I, my mental health would be in a lot better shape if I, if I had more, if I was more grounded to one place more. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed a fairly major correlation between having somewhere where I've hung pictures on the walls and how happy I am to get home. Yeah. It makes such a difference. Yeah. I'm home for all of March and I'm going running every day and it's just yeah. bliss. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. This is the typical stock question, but where did it all start then? Yeah, so I first started climbing when I was like five or six with my dad. And um, he, he basically introduced me not only to climbing, but also to a life of adventure and adventure in general, in whatever you do. He, he introduced me to that. And he also introduced me to travel. Uh, he, he's traveled all over the world and he's very passionate about different people and cultures and ex exploration in general yeah okay and what were the first forays like then with your dad yeah so it's funny we just me my brother and my dad um when we were younger everything was an adventure so you know even just going for a walk was like if we saw something like a cliff or a hill it was like oh I wonder what's around that corner you know or I wonder what will happen if we wiggle through that hole in that cliff or it, it, it was never like we never learned to map read because we never looked at a map you know like yeah. we just we would go for a walk and we would just see what happened and I still have that mindset when I go running now is I'll have my phone on me as a backup with maps on it, but I'll just park somewhere and I'll just run and like I'll just see where I end up. <laughs> and I think it's it's a mindset that maybe is difficult to come by these days, but I think it's 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 an interesting mindset to have. It's fun. It is interesting and I think that I didn't know that and it's it's very interesting to hear you say that because it almost seems like you were given permission at a young age to go and explore and live adventurously because certainly for me, I felt like I only discovered that in my 20s. It could be a personality thing as well, which maybe is like harder to change, even with having certain parenting. Um, but also just like risk management. Like, God, if I think back to some of the things that me and my brother did with my dad, you know, people would call child services now. Like, have you ever been to St. Govan's in Pembroke? No. There's this, the St. Govan's is one of the famous cliffs there. It's like right near the car park and it's close enough where people can, normal people with dogs and things can walk around on the, on the top of the cliffs because it's like a sea cliff. And then in the top, so I know you know it's a sea cliff, but the audience is <laughs> <laughs> And so, like, the cliff's there, and then the top's all this flat and grassy, and, like, people can just walk their dogs around. And there's this, like, one bit where there's essentially, like, a little rock pillar 
detached from the main bit of the cliff. And um, like me and my brother used to climb up and down it. And it was probably like, I don't know, a diff or something. Um, Like definitely like not scrambling anymore, like kind of real climbing. And when we're like nine years old, we're like climbing up and down it. And you could easily slip and die, like (laughs) easily. And my dad just used to let us do that. He just totally trusted our own instincts to not slip and die. And, you know, we'd pop our heads up and people would literally be screaming because they were like, oh my God, there's a child there climbing up a cliff face. And you just don't see that at all anymore. I mean, parents won't even let their kids swing on the swing in the park on their own. Sorry, we've really gone off track. No, no, it's good. And I think we should stay here. So what problems is that going to cause? For society in general? Yeah, why not? Oh man, that's a book of worms. But I don't know, I have some fairly strong opinions about kind of like what you might call a coddling effect. um, Where I feel like people, you're causing people more harm to be content constantly protecting them from discomfort or risk um it's it's like the the perfect analogy is like the a peanut allergy where um like cases of peanut allergies rose massively when parents stopped exposing their children to nuts it is is just an analogy but it's this it's the same thing of like the more you kind of protect people from something, the less able they are to deal with it. Um, and it it goes beyond kind of like physical risk, but also it's like emotional and cognitive risk as well. I think I feel like now we're in a time where more than ever people can't bear to have their feelings hurt. They can't bear to to feel slightly unsafe whether that's just perceived un- lack of safety or whether it's actual lack of safety in people, it doesn't matter anymore. It's all about how you feel. Um, and I think that's hugely coming from like safetyism, essentially. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we, we'll talk a bit more about it if we do another extra episode about, um, what, how is the way, what was the way you phrased it before? What psychology can teach us about climbing and what climbing can teach us about psychology? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly what I said, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, maybe we'll go there. But, um, So when we, when did you start venturing out on your own then, without your dad or your brother? What were the first few little trips like, whether they were down the road or overseas? Yeah, so I guess the, the thing is my parents divorced when I was six, and so climbing wasn't always with my dad. I would only see my dad every other weekend. So the whole rest of my climbing was essentially, and my brother stopped climbing when I was um, probably about nine or 10 or something. He got into skateboarding. Um, so I just used to go to the Warrington Climbing Center on my own, basically. Um, and I was quite a shy kid. And it was just, it was really terrifying for me to, to go into the climbing wall and try and make friends. So I mostly just bouldered on my own. It's really sad. Like literally spent all weekends in on my own, just like climbing on my own. And like, and like two days in the evenings as well. Was there no one else there that ended up 
you know, you just sort of move towards or? Well, there's no kids my age. Eventually, I made friends with the locals in the wall and they would like belay me and I, I got a friendship group, but it took me years to get to that point. And <laughs> like, I'm like a proper introvert who's learned to not be one, you know? Um, and the thing is, there's other kids around, but none of them climbed hard enough. And I used, to, I used to like walk into the climbing wall and like they they used to, the, the people that were so friendly as well, I feel so bad now looking back, but like they used to have to drag a hello out of me. Yeah, that's really bad. <laughs> but anyway, so there's, there was that. And then, and then basically um, what was really cool though is um, I did the competitions so then I met kids my own age who were of my own ability and I had this whole friendship group through the competitions um, and I was on the British team as well. So, um, and we did team trips, like we went to Portland and Fontainebleau and all these places, so that was cool. But then in terms of like actually on my own adventures, I guess like I stopped competing when I was about 16 because I was like, basically decided that outdoors climbing was just much more interesting to me. And I'd found some friends my own age to do that with. And like my first proper boyfriend, he was really into UK trad climbing. So then that was kind of basically what happened, yeah. Okay. And how much did being on the kind of the competition scene help you grow as a climber? Because... I know you're probably planning on being quite humble about all this, but it went pretty well, didn't it? Wait, the being as climber or the competitions? Well, I, I mean, with the competitions, you know, how many times were you national youth champion? Yeah, national but this champion? was at a time when, like, I didn't have any competition, you know? Yeah, I suppose. It was still well, there, well, there was competition, but, like, you know, it's not... Basically, the competitions back then were, like, they were fun. I mean, and not to say they're not fun now, but like people just did not take them as seriously as they do now. And um, yeah, it was just, you know, you could actually go outdoors climbing and have a real life and train a bit and still do really well. Whereas like nowadays you have to be like an absolutely serious athlete to, um, to, to, to even bother entering, let alone win, you know? So yeah, I mean really doesn't say much about me as a climber my days as a competitor <laughs> yeah I suppose did it did it help though did, being on that team and training with like-minded people or was it just competitions at that stage um we didn't have loads of team training and the team trainings then it was like people really didn't know how to train back then and I mean I still don't know how to train I'm actually doing a training program at the moment <laughs> But someone's given it to me. You know? Would you say who? Or do you not want to uh, Dave Mason. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really good actually. I've only done like two weeks of it, but I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm surprised how many professional climbers are being coached by professional climbers in different ways, whether it's mental coaching or physical coaching or technical. He, he is a coach as well, though, Dave. Yeah. Like maybe he's more of a coach than he is a professional climber, I'd say. Yeah. I don't know. But, um,. What were we talking about? Competitions. The interesting bit we'll go for, Did I, I guess. Did I learn is... much? Uh, no, I guess I've learned more after competing, but 
but it was cool. It was really cool to travel and meet kids. Like I did the international comps and that was so fun, you know, to go to somewhere different as a kid and meet loads of other little kids that don't speak your language and try and bond with them. Like it was really fun. And you went traveling, right? That was the, did you go traveling with climbing or did you just go traveling? After school and before uni. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I went traveling for a year after school and um, yeah, I climbed nearly the whole of the trip and it was, it was fun. And basically that was like my first taste of what it would be like to climb all the time, to travel all the time, to have that kind of like trip-based dirtbag lifestyle. And I absolutely loved it. I just took to it like a duck to water. Is that the right term? Yeah. And, um, and then it was like with real kind of, uh, oh, what's the word? I was like, I, it was with a real hesitation, I suppose. I, I went to university after that year. I almost didn't go. Are you pleased you did? I am now, yeah. Yeah, so I did philosophy degree at Bristol. And so during the degree and a few years after it, I thought, God, that's a waste of time. I could have spent those three years going climbing and I would have a much stronger climbing career and to be a better climber and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Since becoming do, since starting doing this mental training coaching, I don't think I'd be half as good at it as if I hadn't done my degree. Why? Um, because you, in a philosophy degree, you learn how to kind of formulate arguments and understand complex concepts, um, uh, which is kind of really useful for self-study and for understanding anything to do with the mind. I also did a lot of philosophy of the mind at university and philosophy of psychology and philosophy of science. Um, which I think gives you good grounding. If, I, th- I sometimes feel like philosophy essentially gives you this like really good radar for bullshit. Like it gives you this, this like, hang on, does that really make sense? Like if, if you can do a philosophy degree, you get taught how to go, but wait, what are you actually saying here? And does it make sense? And so if you're going to self study so I, I basically self-taught myself the psychology that I needed to become a coach and there's so much crap in psychology it's just endless theories that may or may not have any effect on someone's well-being right and so to like to, to disentangle the good stuff from the bad stuff is really difficult and then understand how you might actually coach or teach that is really difficult as well. So I feel like doing the philosophy degree has really helped me in that process. Yeah, I can understand that. So to what extent are you self-taught when it comes to the mental side of climbing, you know, world-class rock climbing, a long way above gear on routes that you can't fall off? Well, that's the thing is, and and this is what made me, this is why being good at that doesn't necessarily mean you'll be a good coach, is that I learned a lot of, how I learned to do that was a lot by trial and error, and a lot just through through the fact that I spent so many years doing it, and a lot 
if, like a huge reason is just that I was massively intrinsically motivated to do it. Um, and so that that is just going to result that is going to result with you know good results, I suppose, and success and. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I knew what I was doing in the sense of replicating it or being aware of it in order to teach someone. Um, and what's been really nice is that since I started to study psychology and mental training is my own climbing has improved. And I'm, I feel like I have a greater capacity for kind of mental management whilst climbing that I didn't have before or that I maybe did have before, but it was quite random. And now I feel way more switched on to actually what I do need to, would need to do to prepare for something, either um, a hard performance or something scary. And to what extent does that you know, what sort of climbing does that breed you well for? More British crowd climbing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of British crowd climbing, but you... Not that much. Exactly, Not you travel that... loads, yeah, right? Yeah, I travel loads now. Maybe when I move back, I'll do more. Um, no, it's really good. It's a great schooling. Like, if you grow up in the UK and you've crowd climbed in the UK, you just, you can place gear on any kind of terrain really you know you can go into an alpine environment and know how to place gear there you can go onto some chossy new route and know how to get up it um it's just great schooling and trad climbing one thing i would say though is that um there are negatives to the british climbing culture as well um when, when you're thinking about whether it makes you a good climber or not like the whole ethic around you're saving the on-site and like spending six hours on one pitch, but if you on-site, then that's better than failing on five routes. You know, that whole whole culture and, and being like super pernickety about ethics to the point where it completely detracts from the experience, I think um, doesn't really lend itself well to, to progression through the sport. There's like a million climbers out there right now who are stuck at, HBS or whatever because they they can't they can't see what they need to do to get past it and part of that's letting go of all of those British norms I think that's interesting so you I guess you're saying it's not just a mental block in terms of oh no if I fall off here I might hit the floor or I don't like falling off because I never have but is it fair to say there's a mental block because of the ethics that's around yeah because essentially like when when you, you're saying, oh, like the only thing matters is that you actually on-site this route, what you're breeding is fear of failure. And fear of failure is, is hugely um, limiting because it means you can't operate anywhere close to your max. And if, you, if you're not operating anywhere close to your max, then what do you learn every time you go climbing? You're not learning anything because the routes you're doing are too easy for you to learn anything new. It's an interesting way of looking at it because we, you know, especially for me, I mean, I have only climbed in the UK really as an adult. I didn't get into it until I was older and there is, you know, very strict. I, I'm trying to, 
I'm trying to learn to egg climb at the minute because I want to go and do some of the obvious egg climbs that I've never done over in America. And I go and practice in the Peak District and I'm terrified that I'm going to get rocks thrown at me by all the old boys who live in the Peak District. And, you know, they'll scream and shout. Isn't that awful? Isn't that horrible that you can't do what you want to do? Yeah. It's sad, I think. But obviously people are worried you're going to damage the rock, but we're not using skyhooks, so... But anyway, as an international climber, you know, you climb you climb all over the world and have climbed all over the world for, what, 10 years, more? Do you just have lots of different reserves of the ethics of each culture and country and dip into those whenever you're there? Or do you have your own set? So I used to a kind of, because I grew up in the UK and only climbed in the UK, I, I basically just adopted all of those values. And then it wasn't until I traveled and I saw people doing other things um, that I altered my framing of it all. Um, like, you know, I, I never really red pointed or head pointed before I left the UK. And then I went to Squamish and climb with people who were just purely motivated by how cool the route was. And if they thought a route looked really cool, but they thought that they would probably need to top rope at first to make it amenable to them, then they just did that. But if they felt like, um, you know, it would be a cool one to try ground up because they weren't going to die if they tried it or they thought that they, they, they were up to the challenge, then they would do that. And it was just really liberating to go, actually, what's going to guide me here is what I think is the right challenge level for me, not what I think I should or should not be doing based on other people's opinions. Um, and I really liked that. And, you know, you just go places where, like, if it's run out for a bit, they place a bolt. And so you are more able to climb stuff ground up as well. You, you can climb harder um, because you're not going to die. You know, like, so, for example, like, I can flash French AA if I go sport climbing. For me to try and flash an AA trad route in the UK, like I would, I don't think there exists one that I could try to do ground up. Maybe some weird crack somewhere, right? Um, so it means that for me to on site in the UK, I'm always going to be below my physical limit most of the time. Whereas like I can go to Indian Creek and I can try and on site an 8B crack there and I won't be able to do it, but at least I wouldn't break my legs if I tried. Um, so it's just different. There's not only difference in ethics, but also difference in rock type too. And I suppose what appeals to you and what you're trying to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because for some people, they just want to go to the, you know, it all falls into the bracket of climbing. They want to go to the greater ranges and climb a first ascent of a snowy peak that's a lot more like, you know, walking than climbing to an extent. Mm -hmm. And some people want to try and, you know, climb the hardest thing possible using a bolt every meter. Yeah. It's just very, very personal and it's probably not a right or wrong answer. No, and that's the thing is that I think in the UK, we really are attached to the fact that there are right and wrong answers. Um, and I, but I think if you if you're not really damaging the rock and you're not really impeding on other people's experiences, then we should be able to be free to do what we want. And and actually, that's what's so beautiful about climbing is it's there's a sport with without these rules, but we somehow still manage to have rules. You know, it's weird. I I, I wasn't going to ask you this question. It hadn't even occurred to me. But um, 
What do you think about climbing being in the Olympics? Um, yeah, I don't know, really. You know, it's, it feels so out of my world, that all that stuff, that I don't think I can actually give you a well enough informed opinion. I mean, I guess one thing I would say is like, there's just, there's obviously there's bound to be positives and negatives to it. For me personally, there's going to be positives in the sense that with all these people starting climbing off the back of it, there's more money in the industry. Um, another thing though, I guess, is that I see the brands I work for shifting way more towards appealing to the indoor climber, which means that people like me aren't very relevant um, because I don't really climb indoors much. Um, but that's sort of from my perspective about changes I might experience. I, you know, like things are gonna get busier in general we might have to worry about the crags getting busier. But equally, you know, are all these new climbers actually going to go climbing outside or are most of them going to stay in the gym? And so all things worth thinking about. But, you know, I don't think it's going to really have, like, a crazy impact on climbing, really. You're not planning on signing up for the Olympic team anytime soon, then? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have me even if <laughs> I signed up. So instead... <laughs> have you not seen me down the works? <laughs> So instead of joining the Olympic climbing team, and obviously, yes, you're planning on maybe moving to North Wales and getting a house and stuff and not living in a rucksack anymore. But what... I don't like dwelling on... or I don't like talking about what people plan to do too much, but what what do you want to do with the next 10 years? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the best at planning for the future or setting goals, but I... I just want to keep doing what I'm doing, really. Like, I want to climb harder. I want to travel to cool places. I want to climb cool things. And I want to keep developing the coaching. Keep developing what I, you know, my knowledge base around psychology. Um, I, I definitely have realized like in the last five years or something that I have to have like more cognitive activities in my life as well and that's what's been really beneficial about the coaching is like I found myself getting a little bit depressed when I was just climbing all the time like I need to have other projects that um that challenge me in a more academic way um and not even just academic actually just 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 challenging me in a way that's that climbing doesn't in in all of the other ways that you could be challenged um and also to the coaching it it allows me to make some kind of positive impact in in a way that i actually feel like i'm uni uniquely suited to do um you know, I'm also always thinking about my responsibility as a professional climber and what I want to do as a professional climber beyond my own climbing. Um, that's something I'm always thinking about. Um, but yeah, that's kind of it, really. Just sort of continue doing what I'm doing. So just on the back of that, then, what what are the extra cognitive or otherwise activities that you're doing? Well, all the coaching stuff, 
um, which is essentially kind of like creating new content to teach or adapting the content I've got to teach. Um, changing up my workshops on a regular basis requires a lot of work. Um, then also just like, I'm pretty kind of, sort of like a hard way to put this without sounding really cheesy, but I'm pretty like into my own personal de development. I'm, I'm pretty interested in just like how to be happier. And everything, what's cool is everything I learn to help. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My clients is also helping myself. And my coaching is really, like the, the main point to my coaching is actually to improve the well-being of the people who come to me. So they might come to me be saying, uh, you know, I want to climb 8A or 7A or whatever it is. But I hope by the end that more has been done. You know, I, I always think that if, if I've done a good job, not only are they more likely to climb their 8A, but they're also more likely to feel better about their climbing, whatever happens. Um, and so, you know, that, that's quite a big project but really tied up in that is is my own desire to feel better about climbing and about my life and on all these things um alongside climbing harder too um and so you know within that like you know at some point I really want to do like at least like a 20 day silent meditation retreat or something or or like you know there's things I want to do for myself like just for me just for my happiness and of course that might help me be a better climber or a better professional climber or be a better coach but but in reality it's also just for me to just be as happy as I can be and because I, I really think that with all these issues we face in the modern world if we forget that actually you can't be you can't have any positive impact unless you're actually happy you're just you're just basically a shit to everyone that's around you if you're not happy. There's there's not there's not much you can do really. So what's the key to happiness then? Oh God, yeah, oh, you really opened it all up now. Basically, I just think the Buddhists had it had it right. Not about everything, but about uh, happiness. Essentially, that uh, you know we are the masters of our own happiness. We're the masters of our own suffering, and the key to being happy is one part, big part of that is, is just understanding that. So instead of, you know, the general assumption is that if only you could change enough external things in your life, you'll be happy. 
So like, if only I could climb this hard, I'll be happy. Or if only if I could buy a house, or if only I had that job, or if I had that girlfriend or that boyfriend, then I'd be happy. And then what we don't realize is that when we get those things, A, there's, they're generally not as satisfying as you think that they were going to be. And B, you lose them <laughs> because everything's changeable. So that's one of the other things is the concept of impermanence. Um, you know, like we're constantly craving these things that we think we want. And then even when we get them, we lose them because nothing's permanent. And so really the key to happiness is like letting go of the craving and the aversion that just like toxifies our whole day-to-day -day life. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, like meditation, mindfulness, having an, an awareness of your own consciousness, um, they're kind of the keys to happiness, really. It's essentially mental training. Well, that's sort of where I was going to try and go with yeah. this. Is, is it not the same thing in a way? It's just a different form of mental training. Yeah, totally. I mean, basically, it's like all of our... Our minds are everything. They are our conscious experience. And so, you know, happiness or sadness is just felt experience. So the more that we can train our minds... Um, and manage our experiences and not just be dragged around by negative thoughts or positive thoughts or, or, or positive negative emotions. Like we're generally a slave to all of that. And so if we can train our minds to not be anymore, then that's the key to happiness and not, not just trying to constantly change the externals in our lives. If you could recommend one thing to read about what we've just been talking about, what would it be? Oh, I've got too many. Whether it's a single article or a book or... Because I think it's a fascinating subject for people that maybe feels inaccessible. Yeah. I think if you're a sciencey, logical person that has been put off by a lot of the kind of the fluff and... Um, Oh, I don't even know what to call it, kind of like disingenuine, like self-help style approaches to, to happiness and psychology that kind of like ruin actually good ideas like meditation and mindfulness. Um, if you're one of those people that's just like immensely skeptical of all of that, I would recommend you read this book. It's called Why Is Buddhism True? Which is, is, a, is a really stupid title, actually. It's, called, it's, it's by Robert Wright. But essentially, he's an evolutionary psychologist. And he is totally, was totally skeptical of Buddhism and, and meditation as a practice. And then essentially stumbled upon it and was like... And introduced it into his own life. And, but also studied the concepts from a Western perspective. So it's really difficult for people with Western minds to understand some of these Eastern concepts, and I really struggled with it myself. Um, but essentially, so his book, that book, he's also got these online courses. So he, he's like some professor at Harvard or somewhere. I don't, I don't know, maybe Princeton, I think it is. 
And he basically does these online lecture series, which are really good. And he also brings in his own experiences. But essentially, it, it, it takes like a no-nonsense approach to meditation. And it's re- really interesting. Okay, that's a good answer. I'll get that myself, I think. <laughs> yeah, you should. This is going to sound really woolly and disingenuous. But, um, what are you most proud of then? We've talked a bit about happiness. And I think, like, interpret that question however you want to. But what are you most proud of? Hmm. I don't know. I, just, I don't really... Um, I don't really think that pride is necessarily very useful. I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a curveball answer. So, okay. That's interesting. I don't know. I just... I just I don't know if it's worth like the cognitive energy of being like I was actually proud of myself the other day. I went cold water swimming. I was going to mention this. It really took quite a lot of it, it took like all of my mental trickery that I've learned, you know, to do it to be and to be okay for the three minutes that I was in or whatever, you know. Um, and I and I came out and I was like, I actually feel quite proud of myself. Um, but you know, when I like look back on my career, I don't know if as a professional climber or whatever, I don't. I just don't know if I don't spend much time thinking about what I'm proud of. But when you think back, and if I say to you, you know, what are the moments of profound joy over the last ten years? What springs to mind as a flash image? You know, Gosh. is it is it standing on top of a sea cliff in Devon or wherever you were, or is it standing on top of El Cap or you know what, I think, I think, I think the moments that, like, make a career, like, someone like me, like, the roots I've done that are kind of, essentially what I would write on my CV, yeah, they often aren't the, in the moment, they're often not the most wonderful moments like it's some of my most like joyful climbing moments have just been like playing around on boulders that I don't even know the name or the grade of and you just whap out some crazy move and you're just like whoa where did that come from and you're just like completely in it you know like flow state moments and you're totally buzzing afterwards, but you never really remember them because you don't really name the, remember the name of the boulder. You don't remember the name, the grade. You, you can't write it on your CV. You can't even tell anyone that you did it. But in the actual moment, something cool happened. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And um, so, yeah. I'm fascinated by... You know, I, I come from a very sort of normal background and I... I discovered all of these things quite late. And so it's really interesting to me to hear, you know, world-class professional, you know, climbers, kayakers, whoever, adventurers, explorers, whatever we want to call these people, say that it's not standing on top of, and the huge inverted commas of this, Mount Everest, Mm. that does it for them. And I'm trying to work out what it is. Well, is it just me, though, who's saying that? Or are no. we all saying that? Most people say right, that. Yeah. But maybe that's because well, I specifically it... focus on 
elite yeah, humble people maybe well you know what it might just be though is that is is what we were talking about before which is this climbing goals are often just like another kind of craving aren't they like i want to do that one i want to do that one i want and and often worse than that i want to have done that one i want to have climbed a free climb del cap and so when you have that kind those kinds of goals unless they're like really come from like a a good place in the sense of like it's not coming from any kind of fear then they're kind of tainted so even like when I've had these goals and they've all come from a good place of like I just really want to be up there on that wall I'm just completely intrinsically motivated to do it it just looks super cool I'm absolutely motivated is that halfway up it because what you've picked to do is really challenging for you and you know that you would feel really good if you did it, there's always going to be some level of, what if I don't? And then when I'm halfway up LCAP or, or a pitch from the top and I'm like, I'm so close to achieving this thing, there's always going to be a level of fear there because you've got so far that the like, what if I don't do it is going to some way kind of poison your experience a little bit and I know that sounds really really cynical and sad but maybe the tops are never as cool as you want them to be or or the moments aren't as joyful as you want them to be because you've kind of poisoned it with a bit of that fearful psychology yeah and I wonder if it's just a fearful psychology or I have a really a memory that like shocked me when it happened and stayed with me was getting to the top of a mountain having spent two weeks climbing it with a group of pro climbers. And we got to the top and someone said, right, can we go home now? I want to go and see my daughter. And it was like, I just thought that totally sums up everything. You know, it's, it's the process. It was getting from planning it in the UK, getting there, traveling there, the fear of whether or not we would get to the top, whether or not we'd fall off, you know, all of the, the things that made up that six-week journey and two weeks on the wall were summed up perfectly for me by please can we go home now being stood on the top rather than elation because it summed it up for you in what way because that was the reality of it that it was it was more about having had done it and not the not actually the process it was the first time in my life that I I stood I was expecting to feel like a hero you know I was expecting like fireworks and I thought mm. we were gonna like take our shirts off and do like muscle photographs and you know do yeah, all of yeah. the the stuff that pro yeah. climbers do. And it was a letdown. Because you were, oh, did you expect it to be different because you were with pro climbers? Because obviously you've been on expeditions and stood on the top of mountains before, right? Yeah. I think I just, there's this perception that pro climbers are muscle-bound gods and that is unachievable, unattainable for most people. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe... You saying I'm not a muscle-bound guy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not commenting. But standing on top of El Cap, having free climbed it for the first time, for you, is maybe as satisfying as somebody climbing their first E1 at Stanage, who never thought they were climbing oh, one at yeah, Stanage. Of course, this is all relative. It really, it, it's it's so shocking to me how people still don't get that it's all relative. <laughs> you just you just swapping out. You know, my El Cap is your E1, or you just swap this stuff out, right? And the emotions are all the same. 
And so there's nothing really that I'm experiencing that you're not experiencing. And the same goes with like fear and obviously I'm not saying that that experience doesn't account for anything or that like being further along that kind of mastery process doesn't mean anything. But in terms of like your own personal learning and your own personal journey and all of the emotions you feel in those moments, it's, it's all just can be swapped out. Yeah. yeah. So what is it about rock climbing though? You know, it was, it, it's sort of, um, it's circumstantial in a way because your dad, we haven't spoken much about who your dad is in the grand scheme of things, but your dad is obviously an established rock climber in his own right. But you're introduced to climbing and then you fall in love with it and you've spent the vast majority of your entire life climbing. What is it about climbing that does it for you? It's a weird question that though, isn't it? Because um, when you get good at something, you it has its own beauty to it just in virtue of the fact that you're good at it. You know, because you can do it on this like subconscious level, you know, like you can move across a piece of rock with like without with whilst also thinking about what you're having for tea right like um it just fe it feels good to be good at something so you don't know whether you love it because you've done it for so long and it's so just ingrained in you or because there's something special about the sport I do think there's something special about sport climbing, though. Um, like, I've asked Alex Honnold this question before. We had a chat about this, and he's basically like, there's nothing special about it. I could just, if I couldn't climb anymore, I'd just do something else. But he's like real no-nonsense no kind of person. I consider myself kind of a no-nonsense kind of person, but he's like totally, woo, no-nonsense. Um, but, you know, I do think there's something special about climbing, and I think what's special about it is that it's and that there are other sports that have this quality too but it's it's very unnatural i mean it's natural but it's unnatural like the movement is kind of natural but it's very unnatural to put ourselves on the edge of a cliff face like our, our evolutionary hardwiring uh doesn't want us to do that a bit like the cold water swimming and so we have to train ourselves and rewire our minds to be comfortable in a place that is not naturally comfortable. Um, and I think to me, that's what's so interesting about climbing and that's different from playing tennis or basketball or something like that. Okay. Yeah, it makes me think, I'm just fascinated by the different answers people give because you know, some people just instantly jump to travel. Well, climbing is just a vehicle for travel. That's what it is. It's, an, it's yeah. the cherry on top of the travel cake. Yeah, but there's loads of things that take you traveling. Yeah. Bird watching can take you traveling. Maybe that's the future when our knees stop working. Or even collecting stamps. But also, like, people get different things out of climbing, don't they? Obviously, I'm, like, really interested in the psychology of it. So, um,. Whereas, you know, other people are, are more interested in hanging out with their mates at the crag, so, you know. <laughs> I'm, I like that too, but, but yeah. Do you think your skill set could transition into, like, and this is hypothetically, do you think you could coach people who don't climb? 
Well, I'm already starting to do that. Are you? Yeah, I've got my first corporate coaching gig this summer. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm really interested in doing that. And I ran a uh, sort of guinea pig workshop at the castle last September, I think it was, which was basically like uh, climbing for personal development, essentially. So I was, I was, it, it, it was flipped on its head. So normally I'm teaching the psychology stuff um like mindset stuff and mental management tools to help you perform better at climbing but this workshop was all about how can we use climbing to develop personally which and how can we use climbing to develop certain skills which we can then transfer to other areas of our life such as relationships or career so there was like playing with the content a little bit in that workshop and then I've got this corporate coaching job in the summer, which is basically going into a company and trying and teaching basically the exact same content as that as what I would teach, apart from the fall practice, that I would teach um, in a climbing environment. But the situation, instead of being climbing, is like giving a presentation in work or going to your client and delivering what you know having a successful business meeting with someone you're intimidated by or kind of like delivering content when you feel completely out of your depth and there's consequences if you fuck up um so I'm really excited about that because I'm I'm just excited by challenges and I definitely feel like I understand the average climber now like I do, I've, I've done so many of these workshops and it's very rare that someone comes out with something that far away from what I've heard before. Whereas like going into some like office in London and talking to people who are like so far away from my day-to-day norm is going to be super interesting, I think. Well, there's an irony there, isn't there, that you're going to have to employ <laughs> the techniques you're teaching in order to teach them. Oh, yes, totally. No, it's really funny, that dynamic. It's like, uh, you know, you, you're, you're teaching people to be able to do something that you are in that moment demonstrating, hopefully well, how to do. It's almost um, tempting to break the fourth wall in that moment and tell them that. Yeah, no, I think you can. Yeah, I think you can say, look, this is me out of my depth. This is what I'm, do- this is what I am currently in the midst of right yeah, now. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It's its own little adventure. I thought you were going to say there was an irony in like, in the fact that I thought it was exciting to go into an office block in London because most people would be like, it's so exciting to go climbing. <laughs> well, there is that too. I mean, I, I love what you said at the start or close to the start about how everything we did was an adventure and like you've obviously carried that on and through. Yeah. That's a nice way to put it. It's sometimes to my own detriment though, <laughs> making every life decision like based on whether it's challenging or adventure enough adventurous enough yeah. but um but yeah um i didn't actually realize until i looked down that we've been talking for 65 minutes so i'm gonna ask you three questions and they they, they differ sometimes but i like them so interpret them however you want what gives you hope gives me hope i hate these questions <laughs> Um, 
you know what? I'm, 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 I've got a good answer. Podcasts give me hope. <laughs> That's the perfect answer. Why do podcasts give me hope? Or a shit one. <laughs> um, I'm really into podcasts. And I think that they're not just like a type of media. They're like a reflection of... Um, global shifts in how in it like exchange of ideas and I think just television and certain types of social media are are just are just terrible for exchange of ideas and learning from each other whereas I think podcasts are a really great way of of learning from other people um because you there's this lack of editing you know you're free to go the conversation can go where it wants to go they are more like conversations um and anyone can do it so there's a real kind of like democratic process with regard to like which ones are successful or not um and I've learned so much from listening to podcasts. I mean, it's really, really, like, my mind has been changed frequently from listening to podcasts, whereas it's very rare that I'll read an article and go, oh, wow, like, this thing that I thought to be true for this, this amount of time, I actually don't think is true anymore. Um, so, yeah. That's go. a fantastic answer, and not just because I run a podcast. Yeah, well, I thought that, well, that was part of it. Yeah. <laughs> just being nice to me. Yeah, yeah, kind of. No, it is interesting. I, I, I listen to podcasts a lot too, and that's probably, you probably would have guessed that, but quite literally last night, um, and my friends and people I work with all laugh at me and would say, oh, that's such a you thing to say, but I, I run, and I listen to podcasts while I run, mm-hmm. and last night I was out for a run listening to a podcast with Tim Ferriss, mm-hmm. and... It's the first time it's ever happened to me, but I listened to something and as he said it, without meaning to, I stopped running and I out loud in the street went, fuck. <laughs> and I got my phone out and I screenshot that moment so that I could go back and listen to it later. And I got home and just said to my wife, like, I, I've just had a profound experience yeah, whilst yeah. out running and listening That's to a cool. podcast. That's yeah, really it is cool. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek though with, with podcasts and if I'm out running and... I hear something that I really think's cool or interesting. I'll like stop and take a note, or I'll like leave a voice mess- memo or something. So it can kind of hinder the running a little bit sometimes, but it depends how you look it. at it. It's worth it. Yeah, because I got to the end of my run last night and didn't realize I'd been running for seventy-five minutes because yeah. I've been listening to Tim Ferriss changing yeah. my life as he went. Yeah, yeah. But also, I think making documentary films is hard. You know, if we were to sit down and make an hour-long film about your life, that would be a very serious project that would take us a year or more. And you need the funding. Yeah. Whereas actually, what's happened is, you've come to the studio in Sheffield this evening. We've both had a beer and recorded this conversation, yeah. and it's that simple. Um, what's your favourite podcast then? It's a good question. Oh, that's such a hard question. I'm going to be boring and say I don't have a favorite podcast because I listen to the, I listen to lots and lots of podcasts and I think there are brilliant things and bad things about all of them and there isn't a perfect style and I'm sure people will think the same about this. I think some people talk too much. I don't think some people talk enough. I love the Rich Roll podcast. Oh, I didn't know that one. Rich Roll's great. He gets lots of really good guests. Um, he it was Rich Roll interviewing Tim Ferriss. Yeah, Tim mm-hmm. Ferriss has his own podcast, yeah, which is amazing. That. Yeah. yeah. But that That's I like. What I you were yeah. But what I love about these people like Tim Ferriss is 
you're taking 250 interviews that Tim Ferriss has done and he's condensing that into 90 minutes. Um, um, do you listen to Sam Harris? Yeah. He's my fave. Yeah, he's amazing. I love him so much. I think he's the only person in the world that I would be like really fangirl around. Okay. Like I'm not, I'm not really into that. Like I never, I'm never like, ooh, ooh, that person's famous. Like I never get that thing going on. Yeah. But he's the only person that if I saw him in an airport, I'd be like, oh my God. (laughs) I don't much anymore. There's two or three. You know most of them. It's funny, the people I would proper fanboy ever. Who? Jimmy Chin's the obvious. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I know, but of course I would. Renan Ozturk is another. Right, okay. I mean, they would be your idols, wouldn't they? Yeah, of course they would, yeah. Yeah. But they have been for the last 10 years. But um, I listen to Niall Grimes and Jam Crack a bit. I've never listened to a single one. Oh, it's good. I'm sure it's good, but I just, I climb all day. I don't want to listen to someone talk about climbing after I've gone climbing. I want to listen to someone talk about, like, AI or something. Yeah, well, that's the funny thing about this is it's a release for me. I get to talk to people like you and people that are interesting and inspiring and sometimes friends, and it's... Yeah, it's interesting. We don't want to do it all the time, do we? I don't... I'm very rarely interested... I'm never interested in climbers who only talk about climbing. Yeah, yeah, they're so boring. There's not much worse than that. I mean, because the thing is, in reality, it's like someone's personality, isn't it? That's interesting, not what they've done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You need to start your podcast. Yeah, I think I will one day. I'm just trying to think when I actually do it. But yeah, maybe. I might say, I'm going to save you the cheesy questions. Am I? No, I'm not. Screw it. I'm going to do them. Okay. Okay, so we've done that one. And then what scares you? Uh, injury. Oh, yeah, let's talk a bit about injury. Yeah, yeah. Do you not want to? <laughs> if you really want to, bad. it's boring, though, isn't it? But, like, 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 my probably greatest fear ever is, like, being paralysed or something. But you've had a, an unfortunate run of injuries, right? Yeah, 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 I'm, like, always injured. Um, but I've also learned a lot from being injured like I might not do the whole mental training thing if I hadn't had the shoulder thing you know I might never have ever done the meditation stuff if I hadn't had a shoulder injury so you know there's definitely like I just I'm just sort of like I feel like I've done enough of it you know is the only thing yeah but whatever it's interesting that though that's what scares you you know, when you've done all the mental training stuff that you've done, the thing that scares you is injury. What would you expect to... Ah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose the uh, no, the answer I would expect is not being able to climb anymore, which would be injury or age or yeah. money yeah. or life yeah, age circumstance. Age scares me as well. Yeah, but... This is... You don't have to answer this question. You don't have to answer any question, but do you think you'll settle down, in inverted commas? That doesn't mean not travel, but like yeah, make bread um, and soup and stuff. I don't know. It's one of those things where I've always just expected that I will at some point. Um, I think because I want kids. But the, the time that you're supposed to do that is drawing always closer. And I absolutely don't feel ready to do it. And I'm really like a bit of a... Like... 
one of my greatest fears is feeling trapped. And so like, I don't, uh, yeah, like the, the settling down thing is scary prospect to me. Yeah, good answer. Yeah. Last question, yeah. then I'll leave you alone, unless we record another. Um, what would 80 year old you say to you would advise you to do more of or less of or oh i'm gonna steal this one from what i learned off a podcast recently okay um it was with oh i've forgotten the name of the podcast and the person who was on it i could i could probably find out but it was like some like business tycoon guy um but anyway he basically said he was, he was asked almost the exact same question. And he said, I do everything the same, but with less emotion. And it sounds like really dark and cynical, but like it really feeds back into all the stuff I've learned from Buddhism. And basically it's just this like, we, we always cause our own suffering. Like there's very rarely stuff that happens in our life that doesn't, that, that we couldn't roll with that we can't, we couldn't be okay with, but it's like the resistance, like the, it's just the endless wanting of things to be different and, and the like bathing in your own negative emotions constantly. And I feel like that's maybe what my 80 year old me is going to say. Like you could have just not felt as much it's, it's, it's a weird language around it because obviously it's not that you don't it's not that you want to dumb down everything that you do like the, the highs don't need to be less high or anything it's just that we don't need to be so emotionally fueled by everything that we do um and so reactive to everything that happens that we don't like yeah, that's the word I would, I think that's really, um, it's a good way to look at it. And I think it's good advice is you didn't say have no emotion, you said less. And I think that's the, lots of us are emotional. I'm a very emotional person and I'm very reactive. And that's one of the things I'm learning to be less, less reactive. And often I give myself 24 hours before I actually engage if I want to talk to somebody and yeah, it's good. Like there's that one book, I actually didn't get to the end of it because I felt like it could have been a book that could have been a chapter. You know, there's books that are like a book that could be a chapter. Um, and it's called like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck or something. It's like one of those cheesy self-help books, but... Did you buy it in an airport? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I was like, shit, I forgot my Kindle. I'm gonna buy what am I going to read? And um, I actually bought it in an airport. And, um, and I didn't finish it. Cause I was like, yeah, I get this. Um, but it's something I do think of quite a bit. It's like, there's certain things that happen in my life that I can spend so long pondering over. Like, is this the right decision? Is that the right decision? What could I have done differently? What should I have done? Like just analyzing to death everything. And, and actually it's like, there's only so many fucks you can give. Are you even allowed to swear on this yeah. podcast? <laughs> And it's like, sometimes you just got to like go with it and know that there's no such thing as a good decision or a bad decision because you've got no other life to compare it to. You've only got this life. And 
And I think that that's just something I constantly have to remind myself when making these life choices is that it doesn't really matter. It's my own response to whatever happens that's going to be the thing that causes me the suffering anyway. And B, there's no right or wrong here because there's only what happens. You know, there's only, all I've got is what happens. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. It's a wonderful sort of semi-ambiguous place to leave it in a way. So I think, and obviously we've talked a little bit about what we'd like to talk about if we were to do another full like feature-length podcast. Should we say that now or do you want to wait and think about it? Yeah, you can say that. So we're going to hopefully sit down in the next few weeks and do a full feature about gender in the outdoors your views on gender in the outdoors and maybe I guess some of the issues surrounding it and your perceptions, feelings, thoughts. Yeah. So I guess for now we'll leave it there. Cool. And thank you. Thanks a lot for having me and the good questions. Good chat. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit the adventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is produced by Cold House in association with Sidetrack Magazine. It's hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr Griffin. And as ever, if you'd like to get in touch, then you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.